We'll go ahead and dismiss our kids this morning to Kids Church. As they're leaving, Brady's excited. <laughs> As they're leaving this morning, uh, how many of you have ever tried to keep a secret? How many of you are married and tried to keep a secret? <laughs> Good luck with that, right? Uh, what I've found, what I've found through experience is that uh, generally if you don't want anyone to know, then in about five minutes, everyone's going to know. But, but conversely, if you want everyone to know, then, then you know, it'll be years before everyone finds out. Uh, secrets are very, very difficult to keep. Uh, uh, my children, uh, you know, we, uh, one of the things that, that's, uh, that's exciting about kids uh, is, is birthdays and Christmas and Easter and all that kind of stuff. And, and you know, whenever you know, it's one of the children's birthdays, we always bring the other ones to you know, shopping with us whenever we go buy birthday presents. And, and inevitably, whenever they know what the other one's present is, what do they want to do? They want to tell them. And so, you know, immediately they, they get home and they say, I know what we got you for your birthday. And you think, oh, great. We have a week, and this kid's supposed to last a week before he tells them what the birthday present is? Yeah, that's never going to happen. And so, so a lot of times we will tell them we got a birthday present from you, but we won't tell them what it is because we know that they're going to let the cat out of the bag. Well, today we're going to be looking at, at Samuel, and we're going to be talking about the secret that has come out. So if you have your Bibles... 1 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to read a fairly lengthy passage, but since it's, uh, since it's a fairly lengthy passage, I'm going to, uh, to kind of skip around and, and pick a handful of passages that, that, are, um, that are most applicable, and we're going to read those, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, but we're actually going to talk about 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 15, all the way chapter 10, uh, all the way through to chapter 10, verse 11. Uh, so whatever I don't read today, uh, go back and read uh, this afternoon, uh, you know, as you are uh, after lunch, after you leave Piccadilly, before you go to, uh, before you go, uh, to dinner tonight or before. Uh, go ahead and read this whole passage. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 15 through 10, verse 11. So we're going to begin in verse chapter 9, verse 15. Now the day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint them to be the prince over my people Israel. And he shall deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people because their cries come to me. When Samuel, saw the, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Then Saul approached Samuel at the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. And Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and in the morning I will let, I will let you go, and I, will let all that is, and I will tell you all that is on your mind. And as for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found, and for whom is all that is desirable in, in, in Israel, and it is not for you, and after all, your father's household. And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjaminite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of the families of the tribes of Benjamin? Then why do you speak to me this way? Then Samuel took Saul, his servant, and brought him into the hall, and gave him a place at the head of those who were invited. 
and who were about 30 men. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion that I gave you concerning which I said for you to set aside. Skip down to verse 27. And they were going down to the edge of the city, and Samuel said to Saul, Say to the servant that he might go ahead of us and pass on, but you remain standing now that I may proclaim to you the word of God to you. Verse, chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to rule over his inheritance? Verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you will prophesy with them and be changed into another man. And it shall be when these signs, do, when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down to you and do an offer, a burnt offering, and sacrifices, and peace offerings. And you shall wait seven days until I come to you, and, it will sh- and I will show you what you should do. And then it happened, when he turned aside, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And all those signs came about on that day. And when they came to the hill... There, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. And it came about when all who knew him previously saw that he had prophesied now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Let's pray. God, as we read this passage, Lord, may may you speak to our hearts. May we see not... Not only your words, Lord, but may we see what your Holy Spirit would have to say to us today. Lord, we thank you for anointing and inspiring your scripture. May your Holy Spirit speak through it to convict us of sin and bring us into obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the secret's out. Last week we looked at Samuel's trek to this place where he meets Samuel. Saul is, 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 he begins this journey, and as he begins this journey, he starts out thinking that he's doing what? That he's looking for lost donkeys. And Saul had no idea that his, that his trek, that his journey looking for these lost donkeys would, would lead him to a man of God named Samuel who would anoint him as king, and as he returns back to his hometown, that what began as a quest for lost donkeys would end up, would, would conclude with, with Samuel anointing Saul and Saul returning as king. Saul had no idea. And we talked about last week that God is working behind the scenes, that God is working in your life, and God is working in places and in ways that we have no idea how he's working, that that he is, he is orchestrating our in, in, and working in and through our relationships and the providential circumstances and the job interview that you overslept and didn't make it to. And he's, he's, he's working in the circumstances of your life to bring you to the place where he wants you to be so that he can work in you and through you and accomplish his will for you in your life. And this is exactly where Saul was. He set out on a trek to find lost donkeys. He goes from city to city to city, and he winds up at the door of the prophet of God, Samuel. And God had told Samuel, I'm going to send you a man. And when that man shows up, he's the king. Now, I want to point out something that that we may have missed in reading the scripture. First of all, we remember a couple of weeks ago that, that God was not 
intending for Saul to be the king. That God had always intended to rule over his people and that, and that, that whenever the people clamored for a king, that Samuel was displeased and God was displeased, yet God gave them over to their desires. You remember that? Well, I want to point out to you that even though God is going to give them a king, God remains God. Look at verse 15 and verse 16. I want to point out something to you that, that speaks volumes about the character of God and his relationship to his people. Now, verse 15, it tells us that the day before Saul got there, that God spoke to Samuel. And verse 16 says, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him as the prince over my people, Israel. And he shall deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw the Lord, saw, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man whom I spoke to you, this is the one who shall rule over my people. Do you see what God has said over and over and over again in these two verses? He emphasizes whose people are the people of Israel. I'll give you a hint. It's the very last word. They are his people. Do you see that? Four times in two verses, God says, my people, my people, my people, my people. They're not Samuel's people. They're not Saul's people. They're not David's people. They're not Moses' people. They're not Abraham's people. God has said that these are my people. Regardless who is king, regardless what they do, that he has said they are my people. Why? Why are they God's people? I'm so glad you asked. Go to the book of Genesis chapter 15. Go to the book of Genesis chapter 15. And I want to explain to you why the people of Israel are God's people. And I want to point out something to you that it has nothing to do with the people of Israel. See, we, we have this idea in our mind that somehow the people of Israel entered into a covenant with the people entered into a covenant with God and that God is bound to the people of Israel and the Israelites are bound to God and that is true in one sense. The Israelites did enter into a covenant with God. God did enter into a covenant with Israel, but it had nothing to do with the people of Israel. This is why this is why God will contend with Israel and God will remain the God of Israel even after they do even after they, they give themselves to idolatry and they, they play the harlot with, for, with foreign gods and even after they, they rebel against God over and over and over again. It's all here in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, I'm going to read fast, so stay with me. Genesis chapter 15. And he took him outside. This is God when God establishes his covenant with Abraham. He took him outside. He said, look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said, to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, he being Abraham. He believed in the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess this land? So Abram asked God, he said, How will I know that you do what you said you're going to do? And God answered, and he said, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old male female goat and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought all these things to him. He said, cut them in two, lay them half opposite the other, and they, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. And then the sun was going down. A deep sleep fell upon Abram. The old terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, know for certain 
Your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, I'll return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about that when the sun had set, it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven, a flaming torch was passed between the two pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. And then he goes on and describes the physical parameters of the land. Now, that was the unilateral covenant between God and Abram. Now, I want to point out, it is not a bilateral covenant. It is a unilateral covenant. Where was Abraham during this covenant? Did you pick up on that? He was taking a nap. Abraham was asleep. See, what was customary in the Old Testament is they would take a sacrifice in order to seal a covenant between two clans or between two families, between two nations. They would take the sacrifice and they would cut the sacrifice in half. And as they cut the sacrifice in half, the two parties of the covenant would enter between the two, uh, the two pieces of the sacrifice, sealing the covenant with blood. This covenant was sealed not by Abram, but by God. Do you see that? The scripture tells us that a flaming torch and a burning oven pass, those are, those, are repre- those are symbolic representations of God's holiness and God's righteousness and God's blamelessness. And God himself sealed the covenant with his character, with his righteousness, with his holiness. And so even if God got fed up to hear, y'all know what that means, right? Your mom said, you know, I have had it up to, I, I have had enough, I, am, I have had it up to here, and that meant bad things are about to happen. Well, even if God gets fed up with Israel, and he is fed up to here, by his own character and by his own holiness, he is bound to his covenant. And so that's why God said, even though they want a God, even though they want a king like all the other nations, they're my people. And God told Samuel, he said, I am going to be the God of my people. Even if they want to be like everybody else, I am still their God. And they are still my people. I don't know about you, but that brings me great comfort. Because more often than not in my life, I look like Israel, running after foreign gods, running after the pleasure of this world, running after that which I think is going to satisfy my soul, running after all of that only to find myself empty, only to find myself wanting more and then grieving because I realize that I have, that I have chased after the things of this world whenever God said, I want to satisfy you. And I come back to God and I say, God, will you please forgive me? Will you have grace and mercy upon me? And he tells me over and over and over again, I will be your God and you will be my people. My grace is sufficient for you. For where sin abounds, there grace abounds that much more. God says, even in the Old Testament, they're my people. It doesn't matter if Saul is their king, if David is their king. It doesn't matter if they're in exile. It doesn't matter if they're being ruled by the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. They're my people. What an encouragement. John chapter 6 tells us this. As Jesus is speaking to his disciples, John chapter 6, verse 36 and 37, John said this, Jesus said this to his children.
He says in verse 37, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Verse 38, He who believes in me, as the scripture, from the innermost being shall flow, from inside of him shall flow rivers of water. We read, we read later on in the book of John that Jesus said, All those who come to me, that I will in no wise cast them out. And all those who come to me, Jesus said, that the enemy will not be able to pluck them from my Father's hand. Why? Because we are his people. And if we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, we are his people. He said in Philippians, Paul said in Philippians chapter, chapter 1, he said that God who began a good, faith, a good work in you will be faithful and just to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. And it doesn't matter what happens in between here and there because if we are his, he will keep us. He will preserve us. He will, he will faithfully take us home because we are his people. I want to point out to you one other aspect here. If you look at the text of 1 Samuel, God comes to Samuel and he says, I'm going to send somebody to you. And Samuel, by his faithfulness, has set aside a sacrifice. He set aside the, the choicest portion. If you look at the text, if you look at the text, he tells his servant, place this guest, place, place this guest at the, the, the seat of honor and give to him the choice meat that I told you to set aside. Well, Saul had to have set aside, I'm sorry, Samuel, had to have set aside some choice meat in order for him to tell the servant, hey, when the guest of honor gets here, give him the choicest meat. Well, that meant that Samuel believed that God was going to do just what he said he was going to do. He didn't say, oh no, what are we going to feed this honored guest? He had already set aside a portion. This tells us and this speaks of the faithfulness of Samuel, that Samuel believed that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And I believe that many of us want to believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do, but, don't, but lack the faith of Samuel. That we want to believe that God's word is true, but when it comes down to it, when it comes down to it, we don't set aside a choice meat. We don't set aside a place for the honored guest. We figure we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But Samuel believed that God was going to do what he said he was going to do in his word. And what's interesting is we must trust God even when it defies logic. Does it make sense to set aside meat for someone who may or may not show up? God tells Samuel, hey, somebody's going to come knock on your door and they're going to be the king. Had this ever happened before in the history of Israel? Had there ever been a king before ever in the history of Israel? Had there ever been a time whenever a prophet was going to anoint a king? No, this, is, this had never, ever happened. And God said, something that has never, ever happened in the history of the world is going to happen tomorrow. Be sure you're prepared for it. Sometimes, sometimes God calls us to trust him even when it doesn't make sense. Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understandings. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. So, Saul shows up. Samuel says, all right, Samuel. I'm sorry, Saul. Samuel says to Saul, all right, Saul, you're going to leave here and there's going to be a bunch of signs, a bunch of things that are going to happen that, that will let you know that what I am telling you is the truth. 
First of all, you're going to meet a couple of people, and they're going to do this, and then you're going to meet three girls, and they're going to do this, and then you're going to meet a bunch of prophets, and they're going to do this. What's interesting about the proclamation of the prophecy is I want you to look at the text because Samuel is very specific in his prophecy. Look at chapter 10. Look at chapter 10, verse 5. I'm sorry, let's go up to verse 3. I'm sorry, let's go up to verse 2. I was just joking. So Samuel says to him, he says, When you go, you'll find two men close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin. And they will say to you, The donkeys which you were looking for have been found. Now behold, your father no longer is concerned about the donkeys, and he is anxious for you, saying, What shall I do about my son? So he tells them very specifically, you're going to go, there's going to be a place, a location, and there's going to be two men, and they're going to tell you this, very specifically. This wasn't some fortune teller that says, I believe you're going to have a career opportunity in the near future. Really? Good to know. No, this was very specific. There's going to be two men. They're going to be standing at this place, and they're going to tell you, the donkeys that you were looking for have been found. Your father's worried about you. Very specific. Look at the next verse. Then you will go on further from there, and you will come to the oak of Tabor. Again, a very specific place. And there will be three men going up to God at Bethel. They will meet you, one carrying three kids, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a jug of wine. And they will greet you, and they will give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. Very specific. Some guy walks up to you. He's carrying three goats and three loaves of bread. And he says, here, these two loaves of bread are for you. All of a sudden, I'm getting really creeped out. And I'm thinking, okay, how is this happening? How does this keep happening? I, I show up. And, and first of all, the guy walks up to me, doesn't know me from Adam, and says, hey, by the way, the donkeys you were looking for, your dad found them, and he wants you to go home. I, I, I don't know who you are. Why are you telling me this? And then I go a little bit further, and I see three men, and one of them comes up to me and says, hey, here's two pieces of bread. And I see the three loaves of bread and the three kids, the three goats that the guy's carrying. I'm thinking, okay, something's really creepy going on. How did this guy know that this was going on? How did he know that I would come encounter with these two men and now these three men? Look at the next verse. Verse 5, And afterward you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it shall be as soon as you come, as soon as you come there to that city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, tambourine, flute, lyre, and they'll be prophesying. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. Well, Sam, Saul says, well, at least this I can control. I'm not going to begin prophesying. I've never prophesied in my life. I, I, I'm not a religious man. I'm not a spiritual man. I've never had any, any encounter with God. Uh, I may have met two men on the road. I may, have, I may have met three men. One of them gave me some loaves of bread. But when I see these group of prophets, I am not going to start prophesying and singing and dancing and acting like a fool. That, that's just not me. All of a sudden, he goes a little bit further. He sees these prophets coming the instruments and they began singing and they began praising God they began prophesying and the scripture tells us that the spirit of the Lord came upon him look at verse 10 I'm sorry verse 9 then it happened when he turned back to leave Samuel said God has changed his heart and all those signs came about on that day and when they came to the hill behold a group of prophets met him and the spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them what this tells us about God's word about God 
It is a reminder that God's omnipotent right hand is involved in every aspect of every part of our life. Everything. Everything from you going home this evening and not having any anything in the fridge to cook so you make your way to, to a restaurant and the people that you interact with, the wait staff that you interact with, the, the, the maitre d' and the, the waiter and the waitress, God has ordained and orchestrated those meetings. So this past week, whenever I realized how old I actually am, you know, we, th- this past week we, we spent some time at the BCM and they had, a, uh, they had a night where they invited all the college students to come to the BCM and eat waffles. And they, th- th- this event started at midnight. It, 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 now let, let me, let me you know, to the college students, oh yeah, it yeah, started at midnight. To us old people, it started at midnight. I'm usually in bed for like three hours. My wife goes to sleep at like 8 o'clock, in, 8 o'clock at night. And, 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 you know, we put our kids to bed at 8, 30, 9 o'clock. Everybody's asleep. At, 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 you know, we don't even stay up for 10 o'clock news. We're old. We're old. And this thing started at midnight. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world am I going to make it till 1 o'clock in the morning? But, but, but we made it. But what the scripture tells me is that God has ordained and orchestrated every aspect of my life. And so, so the conversations and the relationships and the, the, the waffles and, 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 you know, maple syrup is great on waffles. Cane syrup, not so much. Cane syrup's great on biscuits, not on waffles. And, 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 and everything, all the, all the, the little things that, that happen in our life, God is orchestrating everything, all the little details, every relationship, every phone call is all for his glory. And when you begin to look at life through the perspective that God is orchestrating and working out all of the details for his glory and for his purpose, all of a sudden it causes a different perspective. Whenever the wheels fall off the bus, whenever whenever your life begins to fall apart, it's not oh woe is me, it's okay God, what's going on? What would you have me to learn? How would you have me to to conduct myself in such a way that you receive glory? How would you have me conduct myself in such a way that that I can be a light in this dark place? Whenever our entire city is inundated with floodwaters, do we not think that God was was silent? Is it not within the realm of possibility that God was orchestrating all of that in order that his church may shine? You know, what was interesting after Hurricane Katrina... In 2005, I was traveling back through New Orleans about November. And the entire city was still pitch black. Except for one light in St. Bernard Parish. And that light was the chapel at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. See, the American Red Cross and the Salvation Army and the Southern Baptists had all gathered and in St. Bernard Parish, the hub for all support and all, all disaster relief and all, all re- restoration efforts was coming out of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. And it wasn't because they were Baptists, and it wasn't because they were Christian, it was because they had power. But I know that my God 
who sent Saul on a chase for lost donkeys and sent him from city to city to city, who ended up meeting two men and three men and a group of prophets. I know that my God is sovereign. And there's a reason that New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary had power and no one else did. Because when you come into that city and the only thing lit up is the chapel, it says that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. It says, Jesus said, I am living water. And although in the, in the midst of darkness and in the midst of chaos, I am light. Our God is sovereign. I want us to notice the people's response to Samuel, I'm sorry, to Saul prophesying. Look at verse 11. And it came about when all who knew him, being Saul, when everybody who knew Saul previously saw that he prophesied, now with the prophets, that the people said to one another, what is happening to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And if you go down and you look, if you go down and you look, it tells us in verse 14. Uh, was it verse 14? No, I'm sorry, verse 12. And their man answered and said to him, Now who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb saying, Is Saul also among the prophets? So this is what happened. In verse 11, all of Saul's friends, everybody that knew Saul, said, Is that Saul? Prophesying, is that the guy who used to beat us up whenever we were in grade school? Is that the guy who used to, who used to you know, get picked first for everything because he was taller and stronger and faster than everybody? Is this the guy who was such a jerk to us in, in, whenever we were in grade school? Is this the guy who, who is this, this, this nobody-nothing farmer on his dad's farm? Is this the guy, is this Saul who is prophesying? And verse 12 tells us it became a saying. It became a proverb in all of Israel that said, if God can change Saul, he can change me. We would say it like this. Has anybody ever heard the thing? Well, well, wonders never cease. That's essentially what everybody was saying. If we look at the text, it says it became a proverb in Israel. And we've all met that person. We hadn't seen him in 10 years. When we meet him, all of a sudden they've got their life together. They're, they're, they're a, a viable member of society they have they have gainful employment and we thought never in a million years would i have ever thought that guy and then come to find out they've given their life to christ and they're serving and we say well wonders never cease well wonders never cease that was saul saul was not a spiritual man he had no spiritual heritage he had no religious background and the scripture says that saul began prophesying why because the spirit of god came upon him and the spirit of god has a way has a way of taking that which 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 the world has a hold of and transforming it into such a way that only god receives glory the people's response is that saul prophesying saul had an encounter with god and was forever changed and what's interesting is everybody around Saul saw the change. You know, my guess is, is that Saul didn't, he didn't go to the store and buy a Jesus fish and put it on the back of his chariot. My guess is, is that Saul didn't run out and, and buy the newest Christian t-shirt. 
He didn't run out and, and, and start listening to you know, the, the newest Christian music. But what was evident in Saul's life is that the Spirit of God had indwelled him. And all of those who knew him saw a change in his life. One of the first questions that I ask young people whenever, they, whenever I find out that they're in a relationship you know, because I, 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 I love seeing, I, I love young people. I love teenagers, and I love college students. And, and you know, whenever they, uh, whenever I get a chance to meet them and interact with them and hang out with them, and, and I find out they've got a girlfriend or a boyfriend, first question I ask is, do they love Jesus? Oh, dating so-and-so, that's fantastic. Do they love Jesus? And when I get this answer, I, I, I don't know. I do. I know. Because if you love Jesus, if the Spirit of God has impacted your life, other people know. They can tell. They can see. Because the love of God is infectious. The grace of God is contagious. The power of God in and through your life is evident. So when I ask you, does does he love Jesus? Does she love Jesus? And the answer is, I don't know. I know the answer. When I look at a young person, I get a chance to meet, or when I look at an old person, I get a chance to meet him, and I, I spend some time with them. It takes all of about five or ten minutes to figure out whether or not this person's in love with Jesus. What do they talk about? What, is, what, what drives them? What excites them? It ought to be God and His Word and the things of God. I'll point out to you Acts chapter 4. Jesus' disciples or in Jerusalem, Jesus has ascended, the Holy Spirit has fallen upon them, He has empowered them, equipped them to do the work of the ministry. Peter and John are walking into the temple, and there's a man sitting there at the temple, and he's begging for money. He says, he says give me money, I'm broke, I'm hungry. Peter and John look at him, and they say, gold and silver have I not, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And they pull this man and they heal this man. And then the whole city, the whole temple is abuzz about what Peter and John have done. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all those who are in power, they know the, 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 the ruckus and they know the outcry that has just taken place because of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. And so they move in to, to squash this, this uprising and this, this buzz. And so they throw Peter and John in jail and they beat them and they warn them. They say, don't say anything more about this guy Jesus. They didn't warn them not to heal. They didn't warn them not to pray. They said, don't talk about Jesus. And I want you to notice Peter and John's response. Look at verse 18. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than God, you be the judge. Verse 20, for we cannot help but speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. Why? Because they had an encounter with the living God. Saul had an encounter with the living God, and everyone around him knew it. Peter and John had an encounter with the living God, and they said, we cannot help but speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. Throw us in jail, beat us, arrest us, kill us, Do what you will. Paul said, for me to live is Christ and for me to die is gain. He said, I die daily. He said, my life is an offering to God. 
because I've had an encounter with the living God. And so many of us in America, so many Western Christians, we claim to have an encounter with the living God, yet our friends, our loved ones, and our relatives have no idea. Well, there's either one of two things. Either you're lying, or you've never met Jesus. Because when you meet Jesus, when you meet the Spirit of God, when the, when, when the Creator of the universe comes into your life, He changes you. He changes you. And if the people around you don't know, then you hadn't met my Jesus. So here's the question I have for you this morning. Is the secret out? Do people know that you've met Jesus? Your classmates, your co-workers, your loved ones, do they know you've met Jesus? I'm not asking you, have you, have you sat down and shared your testimony? Have, have you told them how they can know for certain they have eternal life? That's not what I'm asking. Do they know that you have had an encounter with the living God? Because the scripture tells us that God demonstrated his great love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Jesus came and died for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus tells us, he said, the enemy comes to steal, to kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He said that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In John 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Have you had an encounter with the living God? If you have, people around you know it. Let's pray. God, I pray that everyone in this room has had an encounter with the living God. I pray that there are those in this room that showed up this morning and had no idea what they were walking into. They've been looking for donkeys, just going about their day, going about their life, and you brought them here so that they could have a collision course with the creator of the universe. That's you this morning. During this invitation time, I want to invite you to come. Maybe you've been a member of a Baptist church your whole life. Maybe you've gotten baptized. But no one around you knows because you've never had an encounter with the living God. But the scripture is plain and clear to us that when we meet Jesus, when we meet the living God, the creator of the universe, we cannot help but be changed. Maybe God is speaking to your heart. He's revealed that the the difficult things, the hardships, the trials in your life are there so that he can get you to the place where he shines in your life and through your life. This morning, maybe you need to come to this altar. Maybe you need to grab someone with you and come pray. Maybe you're going through difficult times and you simply need to, to pour your heart out to God, remembering that we are his people loves us and cares for us. During this time of invitation,
May you do business with the Holy Spirit. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would have his freedom in this place this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.